The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Morning, church. When understood in partnership with God, our work as Christians can be enjoyable for us, purposeful for other people, and a primary location of our sense of Christian calling in the world. And that's true because we're going to spend about one-third of our total life working, whether that's inside our home or outside of our home. And over the past four weeks until today, we've been looking at what the Bible has to say that can inform our perspective about our work. We began all the way in Genesis 2 where we saw that work was not originally this toilsome burden that we just had to get on with to support ourselves. It was actually a gift from God where God placed human beings to reflect God's wise rule in the garden and across all of the earth. It was seen as a purposeful cooperation with God. So we've been looking at what the Bible has to say that might help some of us recapture that perspective on this one-third of our life and the tasks that we do. But I want to admit something to you today. I know that occasionally in listening to sermons, you may hear something and you say, yeah, I agree with kind of what you're saying, but that's too theoretical for me. That's too abstract for me. Preacher, I would like to think differently about my work. I would like to take God to work, but look, I've got to have something concrete. Tell me what I could do to make my faith be a part of the work Monday through Friday. Then today's for you. We're listening to that great um, antagonist of the Christian faith, Saul, the greatest opponent of the Christian faith who became the greatest proponent of the Christian faith, the Apostle Paul. He's depicted here, and in this particular image, he's kind of preaching a sermon in the moment, and in his left hand, he's holding up a manuscript of the Latin translation of the New Testament called the Vulgate, which was written in the 4th century. And it has on it, in very tiny print, Latin quotations from the book of Ephesians that we listen to today. The Apostle Paul was kind of the mouthpiece that God used after Jesus concluded his earthly ministry and the other 11 original and one new disciple to replace Judas began to spread throughout the ancient world. The primary person whose words we remember are the Apostle Paul. He heard the story about how God had sent this human being named Jesus who had been prophesied as a coming Messiah and that this Messiah came and lived and actually revealed the heart of God through His actions and through His words. But most of all, He had suffered our death. He had been put to death by execution by the Romans. But God had raised Him from the dead, therefore validating everything He had previously said and done. And Paul says that this event in human history is the great hope of humankind. And his life's mission becomes to share this good news throughout all the world. Well, in the early 50s, Paul went on one of three missionary journeys. This was his second. In this map of the ancient Mediterranean world, you could see Israel in the bottom right-hand corner. And Paul would go up through Antioch and over across Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. He'd make his way all the way to Greece and back down through Corinth. And then he would end up in a little city called Ephesus, except it wasn't actually a little city. Where that arrow is pointing was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. 
It was comprised of about 250,000 people. And because it was located right there along the Mediterranean Sea, it was a central place for commerce. It was a religious and cultural center of the ancient world. And there Paul stops and begins to tell this story of God's Son Jesus, His death and resurrection, and people begin to believe. And the church is born there, and it's a small group of people. And Paul gets to know them very well. Because while this first visit is very, very short, he comes back a few years later and stays for three years living among them, teaching and ministering and baptizing new converts. Well, about ten years after he planted the church, the Apostle Paul sits down to pen a letter to them, and it's the sixth chapter book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, Paul has one central message to the church. He knows that congregation is made up of Jewish believers in Jesus and now Gentile converts to faith in Jesus. And Paul is writing to say essentially, it isn't your common social standing that brings unity. It isn't your nationality, your ethnicity, your education level, your language, your accent, or your football allegiance. You are unified as a church because you have all been saved and forgiven by Jesus Christ and therefore owe Him a common allegiance. All right, now that's his letter to them 20 centuries ago. But we believe that Scripture is the inspired Word of God. It's not just an ancient history book. It's living and active. And the Holy Spirit of God lifts those words off the page into our eyes and ears and settles them into our souls. So that means this isn't just a letter to the church at Ephesus, but a letter to church at Ross Bridge. And the section we're looking at today at the end of chapter 4 and beginning of chapter 5, my Bible, when I began doing my commentary study, entitles this, Rules for the Christian Life. And you can get the sense that Paul doesn't have a lot of time to beat around the bush. He's real direct in how he expects the church at Ephesus to behave. And so he says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Stop right there. Paul's writing to a church, and primarily he is concerned with the way that Christians interact with and behave towards one another between Jewish believers and Gentile believers in Jesus. But we know that Paul intends for Christians not just to behave like Christians in and at church, but to live that way as Christ's representatives in the world. And so I believe it's faithful to say that while Paul is writing this to a congregation, he expects these lessons and instructions to be lived out in whatever they do, including their places of work and ours. And so, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. The average adult, according to LinkedIn, speaks about 7,000 words a day. Now, if you have an occupation where you work kind of primarily on individual tasks, maybe you're a graphic designer or a mechanic or a chef, then you might speak fewer words than that. But if you work as a teacher or in a group environment like a project leader or maybe you're in sales, you may speak higher than the 7,000 words a day. But regardless of how many you end up with in your average day, I believe that this is true. The words that you use and that I use either contribute to a better air quality in the environment of where you work, or they make it poisonous, the air that we breathe. And I believe that Paul agrees with that. The word that he uses, unwholesome talk, is a word that can mean, kind of have several different lenses to it, different angles to it. It can mean talk that once was pure but had been corrupted or maligned. 
It can mean that it's unfit or inappropriate. And another phrase, it can mean pure rotten. Some of you may have spent time working with someone who had a foul, vulgar mouth, raunchy language, debased language, and you had to work around them all day long for an indeterminate amount of time. Now, when you are around somebody who constantly speaks in that way, uses that kind of speech, I don't know about you, but I sometimes almost feel like I have to take a shower after I get out of their presence because it's so debased. Reminded me of a lesson my mom taught me when I was in middle school. When I was in middle school, I spoke fluent Southern Georgia English. <laughs> but I also had gotten very serious about learning to speak innuendo. And there wasn't anything that could, I mean, just anywhere near kind of all the forbidden talk. And I just would snicker and make jokes. And my mom occasionally would hear me just kind of snickering and making jokes. And I remember once her saying to me when I was making a joke at my brother, my older brother, my mother, who is a very, very sweet person, said, Nathan. And she reached over with her hand and placed it on my arm. And then she pinched <laughs> the back of my arm and twisted and said, get your mind out of the gutter, son. Anybody else's mom ever say that to them? And I kind of winced and withdrew, and I said, what do you mean the gutter? And she said, well, you know, when it rains, all the garbage and grime from the street flows right down into the gutter, and that right now is what's running through your head. So clean up your language, or I'll wash your mouth out with soap. And we still used that orange dial soap. <laughs> can clean up nuclear waste. What she was trying to say to me was pretty straightforward. Every time I was using coarse language, I was pulling my mind down to where the darker angels of our nature can fly, rather than being uplifted to what is true and wholesome and good. And the Apostle Paul gives a very clear, don't let anything that is unwholesome come out of your mouth. And he gives them, in place of that, an alternative. He says, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So get rid of unwholesome talk and in its place only use language that is helpful for building others up according to their needs. This language that Paul uses here for helpful and building others up, think about what that might be. If you were in a work environment, I would think that it includes being polite and considerate in our language. But before we kind of go down the road of thinking that Paul's saying, y'all should just be sweet Southerners and be nice all the time and act like there's no problems. That's going too far in the other direction because one way that we help other people is by being truthful. So before we begin to think that Paul's just saying we should all be nice in our careers, no, no. Sometimes when you're part of an organization and you work at a business or, or an organization of any kind, that organization has a purpose. It has objectives that need to be met. And if people are unable to meet those objectives or if they're going off course, they need to be told the truth in a beneficial and corrective way, not a demeaning or accusatory kind of way, not, not a way that beats them down, browbeats them, no but to speak the truth to people so that they can be helped. They should also be encouraged or built others. We should build others up. 
The Apostle Paul here, though, is not just saying get rid of unwholesome talk and getting rid of uh, language that is helpful, or get, adding language that is helpful. He's also talking about being a blessing to one another. A few months ago, uh, we had a staff meeting on Monday, as we typically do, and one of our staff members uh, works part-time with us, and they have a job outside of the church in addition to the role that they have here. And at the end of that staff meeting that day, they kind of stuck around and lingered and waited for everyone else to leave. And um, I said, hey, what's on your mind? And they said, I just felt like I needed to state what a blessing it is to work in this place. This is the second staff meeting that I've been in today. The first was at my other job, and this one was here. And here, I heard people encouraging each other, thanking each other, trying to help each other, making suggestions to help each other. They were respectful towards each other. I heard them laughing together and enjoying being together. And the other meeting that I was in today was not that way. And in their words, I heard more F-bombs in that meeting than the times we named the name of God in this meeting. And I want to say something. I'm grateful that day that John Mount had not gone on one of his profanity-laced rants <laughs> because that Beth knows... Uh, So Paul says, get rid of the bad stuff, fill it with good stuff. But then he gets specific. It's like he's kind of making an introductory statement here, and he gives three categories of the kinds of unwholesome talk that he's talking about. He says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. I kind of grouped them together in my study of those Greek words. They're interesting words that have deep meaning to them and can give us a rich perspective on what it means. When he says bitterness, rage, and anger, he uses the concept there of a plant that grows a bitter herb. And it made me think, what do plants do? They put roots down deep so they can secure themselves deep into our hearts. They begin to grow and then they produce fruit. And if you've ever had a spirit of bitterness and anger and rage towards someone that you work with, you know just how deeply those roots can creep into your heart and into your life. And Paul says, you can't live that way. You and other people should not be ticking time bombs, waiting to jump down each other's throat or take one another's heads off. Instead, you have to release those things. The second phrase he uses is get rid of brawling and slander. Well, if the first one had to do with the interior condition of bitterness, rage, and, and anger, this one has relational qualities. In order to have a brawl, there has to be a second person or more. In order to, there to be slander, it has to be injurious language about someone else. And Paul is saying to them, these are not fruits of the Spirit. Christians should be cooperative. They should be open and understanding and be peace making in relationships. Finally, he says, get rid of every form of malice. This word malice that he uses in the Greek means that you're wishing harm to somebody. You hope they experience an accident or that they are derailed. Some of you have worked in places like these three descriptions that I just gave. You've had some of those experiences. Maybe you work in a place like that now. And if you have or if you do, I bet you'll agree with this following statement. You can have a high-paying job with great insurance, retirement matching, a share of ownership in the organization. You could have a corner office with an amazing view and generous vacation time. But if the people that you work with 
are temperamental, suspicious, slanderous, contentious, and cliquish, the air is heavy and toxic. And you will not be happy because you're breathing in poison because of the way those human beings are acting toward one another. And Paul wants to say that if we're followers of Jesus, we not only would never be contributing to that kind of environment, but we actually improve it for everybody else. And he does this by pointing us back to Jesus Christ. N.T. Wright, uh, the great New Testament scholar, I was reading his commentary on this passage, and he said, how would we feel if God were the kind of God who made snide remarks about us? What would worship and prayer be like if we felt like God had been talking behind our backs, putting us down to others? How would we feel if we believed God wouldn't tell us the truth or regularly lost His temper with us? Well, how do people feel when we act like that? Paul's message here is a whole lot deeper, friends, than helping Christians be polite and professional. He's not trying to create a bunch of nice, well-mannered Southerners who can criticize somebody and then add bless your heart, and that means it didn't count. Paul is getting at something much deeper than just the nature and impact of speech. He's going deeper to the condition of the human heart. Because back in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has an opportunity to address this specifically. In this particular rendering by Rembrandt of Jesus, he has on the right side of the image all of the poor that he's gathered around his feet to minister to them. And he's receiving criticism to the people in the left-hand part of the image who are the religious leaders. Double-minded, insincere, hypocritical, judgmental. And Jesus will say to them, Make a good tree and its fruit will be good. Or make a bad tree, a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Would you read that bold with me? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. And when I'm describing how Christians can take God to work through their language and actions, and I describe toxic places of work and how difficult it is to work when it's not a healthy environment, let me tell you something. We're not just talking about open, you know, shouting matches across cubicles or people throwing things around in a conference room at one another. These things begin, they have their first seeds planted like little seeds of resentment whispered as gossip and slander in the ear of somebody else. They don't begin in dramatic acts of confrontation. They begin in tiny little interactions where people begin to build coalitions and invite other people to have sympathy for their perspective and cast someone else as an enemy. So we can be active participants in using harmful words, but we can also be a passive participant in entertaining someone else's harmful words. We can create a sympathetic audience for someone who has a word of criticism about someone else. Let me give you an example. When I was 24 years old, in my first job at a church, I had a colleague. This colleague was older, you would assume wiser, 
more further along in their Christian journey. And it came to my attention after I'd been there about a year and a half that this older minister had taken a church member to lunch, and while they were at lunch with that church member, began to ask that church member how they thought I was doing at my job and ask probing questions and kind of suggestive questions about my work performance and decisions that I had made. And that word got back to me through the grapevine. And I was a young adult, 24 years old. I would handle things a little differently now. But at that time, I was trying to figure out, you know, okay, how do I respond in this situation? So I went to a coworker, and they made me feel a whole lot better about my righteous indignation. I described what this person had done, and they said, I'm sorry they did that to you. I mean, are they either ignorant or are they mean-hearted? Because it's one or the other. You know what you should do? Next time you have an opportunity, they make a mistake, you should address it publicly in front of somebody else. I mean, they clearly need to learn something from this situation. Maybe God would use you to help correct their behavior by publicly embarrassing them. I mean, if you're going to be stupid, you better be tough. And I felt so much better in that moment because I felt like, you know, I, I was wrong. And that person was wrong, and I'm right, and I'm the victim here. And they deserve to know exactly how injurious their words and actions were. And it made the problem compounded and worse in my soul and spirit. I processed what they said. And maybe later that afternoon, the next day, it was another coworker, and I kind of pulled them aside and said, hey, can I ask your opinion about something now? This person did this, recounted the story, and this is the way the second person responded. I'm so sorry for what you've experienced. It sounds like they shouldn't have acted that way toward you. It would have been better for them to come to you if they had questions about the way you were doing your work. I understand why you'd feel upset. So when do you think you will reach out to speak to them privately to talk about what had happened? Because I think you'll have an opportunity for reconciliation. I, I choose to believe if they were made aware that you interpreted what they did that way, that they would like the chance to apologize and try to make it right. And the situation got better in my spirit. And I actually chose that second pathway. And I learned as a young Christian a valuable lesson in that moment. And it's one that our staff has signed off on, on our staff covenant of conduct that we review at least once a year together. If we have a conflict with another staff member, we will work out that conflict first with that staff member before we work it out with or involve anyone else. Because friends, the Holy Spirit of God in the New Testament doesn't only bring the fruit of the Spirit like joy and love and peace. It not only fills our heart like the Spirit did a few minutes ago when we were singing and we're given joy and we want to stand and in the New Testament they speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit can also lead me and you to shut our mouths. To demonstrate self-control. To examine ourselves to apologize. The Holy Spirit of God is leading us as disciples to be careful about the words that we use and thereby improve the quality of the air that everyone is breathing. The Apostle Paul gives, and as we close, alternatives to rage and brawling and anger and slander and all that list of bad things to avoid. 
he concludes by calling us back to remind us of the gifts that we have already received. He says in uh, the end of chapter 4 and beginning of chapter 5, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, dearly beloved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the great exchange that happens in the Christian life. Instead of practicing bitterness, raging, and anger, we are called to practice forgiveness. Instead of practicing brawling and slander, we can practice compassion. Instead of practicing malice, hoping for someone's worst outcome, we can practice kindness. And for Paul, as he grounds these practices of forgiveness, compassion, and kindness in the story about how God has treated us all in Jesus, we are given a reminder of who we are. We're given gratitude for the way that God has treated us. And we're given a little bit more courage and strength to begin to speak in forgiving, compassionate, and kind ways to others. Look, if you have no interest in the specific claims about Jesus and the story of God, if you just thought that Christianity was functionally beneficial to make your life better, apply this and let me know whether or not it works, because it does. Just a couple months ago, my wife graduated with her PhD from Alabama, and it was a long three years for her to do that, but um, for her, God had given her a handsome and loving husband who supported her in that. <laughs> and yeah, to, um, About the time she started that program, she started a new job. And my wife has always worked uh, with children who have hearing impairments and are deaf and um, has a great heart and calling for that in the world. She takes God to work with her, believe me. And when she began this new job, she was sharing after just a few months with her coworkers, um, just casually in the office. There are a bunch of therapists who do similar kind of work. And she said, yeah, I, you know, I'm going back to school. I don't know how in the world we're going to do this. Um, but she bragged on her husband and kids and all that. And um, the person, some, one of her coworkers said, well, you know, what are you planning to do after that? She said, well, I think one of these days I'd like to teach the college or university level um, and train other therapists and there's really a need in this population to be served with, with the work that I do. And the person responded in a surprising way, kind of caught Cameron off guard and said, well, before you go to teach, I would encourage you to spend a little bit more time gaining therapeutic skills in the classroom. And Cameron said, you know, in the moment I just said, okay, but as I was driving home that day, I was thinking about it, and it really felt like a sharp criticism. And I could feel my emotions begin to kind of well up, and I'm thinking, you know, that's, I need to address that. So she prayed about it. And the next day, I went back to work and went and asked her coworker, can I speak with you for a second? You know, yesterday when we had our conversation, I was talking about school, you made a comment, and I interpreted that as, you're not a very good therapist and you need to work on that before you go and start working and learning something else. And that kind of hurt my feelings um, and I thought you would want to know that. And the person immediately said, I'm sorry, 
sometimes the way that I express things, I'm not really gifted at that. And I actually intended just to say that the more time that you spend doing therapy here will make you an even better instructor when that time comes. And I hope that that's true for you. And Cameron said, okay, I, I understand. Thank you. I received that. Um, let, let's, let's put it behind us and move forward. And recalling that conversation this week, Cameron said to me, the funny thing is, rather than us becoming adversaries because she had said something hurtful to me, I actually think by going and talking to her about it, it improved our relationship. And we got along just fine for the remainder of my time working there and are still professional friends today. Friends, words have power. Words have power. And for disciples of Jesus Christ, our words reflect the one we worship. And if you're, no matter what age you are, if you're in school, if you're at work, if you're in retirement and in social circles, the speech that you use to speak truthfully, graciously, building others up will absolutely serve as a witness to the grace God has already poured in your life through compassion and kindness and forgiveness. So wherever you're going to work tomorrow, Monday through Friday, you're going to get about 35,000 opportunities to speak. Remember, begin your day remembering the God who spoke the eternal word, Jesus Christ, into the world is the God who has demonstrated compassion, forgiveness, and kindness. And you will improve the air quality at your job because every breath that you take is like the Spirit filling your lungs. And when the grace of God fills your heart and life, you're speaking grace and blessing into the air that everyone else is breathing. God, my prayer today is that in the strong name of Jesus Christ, you would fill every man, woman, boy, and girl in this room with wisdom, with graciousness, with truthfulness, that wherever we go, we would be people who are mar marked by speech, not that is unwholesome or slanderous or divisive or angry, Lord, but rather words that are true and kind and good and helpful for building others up. We want to do that, Lord, because we want to take you with us to our work. And we know that if we do that, you will transform the way we see our work as enjoyable for us, meaningful for others, and a primary place of our calling in the world. It's in the name of your Son we ask this thing. Amen. The Church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama, and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ. 